I was 17 years old, and I'm driving my old black Chevy Blazer. I loved that truck, okay? I used to drive that thing through the mud. I eventually destroyed it and killed it, and I had to sell it for $500. You ever have a car like that? I loved it, though, and I was in my car, and I was bumping my music, and it was just grooving, and I had the big bass subwoofer speakers, like a big old box in the back like that made the license plate rattle, you know, and like my parents hated it, and everybody else hated it, but I loved it. And I was like thinking, but it was, it was Saturday morning, okay, and I was running late for work. And I was in a hurry, and I'm trying to get to work, and so I'm taking every little corner and shortcut that I know how to take. And I was sitting at this little intersection, and if, I grew up in a little town called Wilson, North Carolina. If you know Wilson, you know the intersection of Ward Boulevard and Raleigh Road. I'm at this intersection, okay, and I got to hang a left to get to work, and I must have had a lot of other stuff on my mind. See, this was one of those old cars, maybe you've had one like it, where the gas gauge didn't work. And uh, you have to use, like, the tripodometer and, like, some advanced algebra to figure out when it's time to get gas, you know? It's like, how many miles do I ride for gal? And you have to pay attention. And I've already told you I was 17, so we know that wasn't happening. And so I'm just like, and so I had a lot on my mind. I'm running late for work. I'm trying to figure out how to save 30 seconds to get there 30 seconds earlier, so I'm in 30 seconds less trouble or whatever. And so I didn't notice when the car started to sputter a little bit. And I'm just wishing this light would turn green because I got to go to work. Well, the light turns green. And my car turns off. Actually, not immediately. I gave it a little bit of gas, and I got, like, into the middle of the intersection. <laughs> and it was just done. I was out of gas. You guys ever been out of gas before? You're, it's embarrassing. It's inconvenient. Let's be honest. Sometimes you knew it was going to happen, but you took that last gamble, like, when you were driving by that last gas station. Like, I can make it. One more mile. Nope, can't make it. I ran out of gas a lot of times in that truck because, like I said, the gas gauge didn't work. And like I said... I was 17, <laughs> and I wasn't good at math, but I was mostly 17, and uh, yeah, running out of gas is totally inconvenient, and it's, it's something that really is a good metaphor for what I want to get into today, because I want to talk about how to refuel spiritually, how to get our souls full, and also maybe the dangers of not refueling, because it can be pretty dangerous if you don't. This is the second week of our Rhythms of a Disciple series. And we've been looking at what does it look like to get in step with God, be in rhythm with Him. I love the bumper video right before this series because it's just grooving. Because I think we kind of all, even if you're not like the person who can dance, you wish you could. Believe me, as a person who cannot dance, I see other people just grooving. I'm like, man, I just, I shouldn't. You know that movie? It's like, just stay right here. This is your spot. Don't move from that spot because rhythm is infectious and it's contagious and you want to be part of it. And so being in rhythm with God. Living the rhythms of the disciples is something that if you're going to call yourself a Christian, it's important to do. In fact, there were certain things that Jesus' disciples did and that Jesus did regularly, routinely, daily, weekly, monthly, annually. That if you don't do some of those things, in fact, if you don't have some sort of rhythm that's in line with what Jesus did, you probably shouldn't call yourself a Christian. Because that's what it means to be a Christian, is to live in that rhythm that God lays out for us. And so traditionally, these rhythms are called spiritual disciplines. And maybe you've heard that phrase before. Uh, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot, and generally, almost anything you do in your life can be a spiritual discipline. You know, you can step up and just do anything and, and aim it towards God. But we're going to aim at these six that we're covering in this teaching series. And so we're using the acronym HABITS to outline six of these 
of these habits, sins of H-A-B-I-T-S. And we already looked at H last week. That's a hunger for righteousness. So go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it yet. But the idea of a hunger for righteousness, it says that, you know, God, if you want to get anywhere with God, you need to be hungry for him. You need to search for him. And we also talked about what it looks like to adjust your spiritual diet some last week. And that's a big step. This week we're talking about abide in God or abide with God. You can use it interchangeably. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then we're going to continue through this series looking at Bible internalization, intentional relationships, telling the story, and serving others. And so this is H-A-B-I-T-S, habits. These are six spiritual disciplines you can dive into to be in rhythm and in step with God. And to start out today looking at abide with God or abide in God, I want to just take a look at and ask some questions about it. Abide is not a word that you use very often. Anybody use that like regularly? I'm going to go abide at the gas station for a while. I don't know. Like we don't say abide. What does it mean? What does abiding feel like? I'll give you some examples for me personally. Like uh, for me, I have a feeling when I'm sitting around a campfire, one of my favorite places to be, one of my happy places is just on a camping trip or even in, in my backyard around the fire pit. And you're just sitting there and I'm like gazing into the fire and it's just burning and nothing else is on my mind. And it's just, oh, this is great. Now, camping might sound miserable to some of you. Maybe you have some other things. Another thing that I like to do is just get lost in working with my hands. I love to build things. I love to fix things. I love to work on mechanical things and wooden things. And it doesn't matter. I just love to work with my hands because I kind of get lost in it. I kind of get in step with what's going on, and I don't think about other things. Uh, I love to play music. I'm a musician. I love to pick up one of my guitars and just, it doesn't matter what I'm playing. I'm just playing, and I kind of go into a zone. Maybe you've got a space like that in your life. Maybe for you it's sitting on a beach on, on a beautiful day and the weather is great and the breeze is just flowing just right. Or maybe for you it's, it's a good book that you get into and you just open it up and you get lost in that book. Or it's fishing or it's hunting. Maybe it's baking or it's cooking. Maybe it's just eating, you know. And you get in this happy space. That's your zone. That's what abiding feels like. In fact, let's do a little exercise right here if we can. Um, if, trust me on this. Okay, close your eyes. Do it at home too. Take a deep breath, real deep. Let it out slow. And do that two or three times and just focus on nothing but the sound of the air coming in and out of your body. Just breathing, just breathing. Just open your eyes. Do you feel that? It's peace, it's just calm. It's a little bit about what abiding feels like. And whether you were watching me through a screen or whether you were here in person, the cool thing is we were together in that. To, buy, to abide is about, also about being together in something. That's what it feels like. What does it look like? Let me give you an, a definition for abide. This is just from the dictionary. To abide means to accept or act in accordance with. To accept or act in accordance with. So when you're abiding with something, you're in step with that thing. That's why when you're in your happy place, you're just like, ah, I just accept this. I'm just here and I'm, I'm in this zone. Let me show you what it looks like, if that's what it felt like. It looks like, imagine two people dancing, okay, whether they're ballroom dancing and they're doing fancy stuff or just like a slow dance, uh, you know, the father-daughter dance after a wedding, whatever, like, and there's this sway and there's this movement, you know, one person moves right and the other person mirrors that movement by moving left and they sway and they move and there's also a rhythm to the music as well. And no matter what kind of dancing you're getting into, if you're moving in step with the other people who are also dancing, that's what abiding looks like. And so when it comes to abiding with God, 
That's what it looks like. God's moving this way, and we're like, oh, we're moving this way. And God's moving that way, and we're like, oh, we're moving that way. And if you've ever tried to dance with someone who's not a good dancer, God bless my wife, she's a fantastic dancer, I'm not. You know what it's like when someone's not in step with the dance, and you're like, ow, ow, no, this isn't dancing. And that's a picture of our spiritual life when we're not lined up with what God's doing. We're tripping and stumbling all over the place, and we look like fools, and sometimes we try to look cool. And so abiding, there's a feel to it, there's a look to it, there's a rhythm to it. Jesus said this, we saw this in Miss Bethel's video a minute ago, John chapter 15, starting at verse 4, we'll look at just that first verse. He says, remain in me, and I also will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And so that remain, uh, there's a Greek word that that's translated from. It's menata. I think I'm saying that right. Menata. You can almost hear the word remain in menata. But the, the Greek word that Jesus uses there is also sometimes translated abide. Okay, so that's where we're coming with this. And what it means is to stay in the same place for a while. Jesus says remain in me. Menata in me. Stay with me, hang out with me, get to know me, spend some time with me, talk with me, get in step with me, abide with me. And then in verse 5 he says this, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. This is a powerful verse, just a couple little sentences. Abide in God. And there are so many ways that we can do that. In fact, this whole series, Rhythms of a Disciple, is about abiding in God, you know. But specifically, how can we get that feeling and that sway? How do we really abide with Him? I'm going to offer three ideas, okay. And actually, there could be a sermon done on all three of these ideas. We could break this down how many ways we wanted to. But here are the three words I want to kind of put in your mind. The word silence, the word meditation, the word rest. Silence, meditation, rest. We're going to break those down, but think about those three things. Silence, meditation, and rest. Those aren't like high on the priority list of our culture, are they? Silence, meditation, rest. Now, we're not, we're not good at silence. We're not good at meditation, which is thinking about things. We don't think. We're not good at rest. We run ourselves ragged. And so these things are kind of hard to find. I mean, we run 100 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We never take time to take a break. We have a hard time to focus on any one thing. It's hard to abide in anything, let alone abide in God. So how can we land there? Last week, I recommended a book called Celebration of Disciplines. If you haven't gotten Celebration of Disciplines, I want to encourage you to check out a copy, uh, buy one. I just got a Kindle copy this week because I wanted a digital copy because I'm reading it as a companion to writing the series. Uh, it's by a guy named Richard Foster. It's a really good read, and it goes through a ton of spiritual disciplines. What does the Bible say about these spiritual disciplines, and like how can you actually do them in your life? And so it's, it's a really good idea um, to check out that book. Richard Foster says this that lines up with what we're talking about today. He says this, in contemporary society, our, adver our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. I never heard the words muchness or manyness until I read this, but think about our lives. Muchness, manyness. He keeps us tied up in noise and hurry and crowds. And then he quotes this psychiatrist named Carl Jung. Carl Jung said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. 
Now compare that with these three ideas. Silence, meditation, and rest. Which one is your soul the most hungry for? The busy and the bustle and the manyness and the muchness, or maybe some silence and meditation and rest. So let's look at the Bible some more. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1 today primarily. Mark chapter 1. It's one of the uh, biographies of Jesus' life, the book of Mark is. And in Mark chapter 1, we kind of get, Mark Mark is actually uh, often called the gospel of action. And so I love that in this book where Mark barely takes a breath, he is constantly saying uh, things like, immediately they did this, and immediately they did that. Uh, But in this particular story, We're going to see something about how that works with Jesus. And by the time we get to verse 21, we're going to start at verse 22, but let me just back you up. Jesus has gone to Capernaum, which is a little village town that most of, a lot of his early disciples were from. It was Peter and Andrew's hometown, okay? And so that was kind of his home base for a lot of his ministry when he was in the northern region of Galilee. And so he's in Capernaum. It's the Sabbath day, which is equivalent to us in terms of worship as Sunday. It was their Saturday, but they had their church service. They would go to the synagogue. They would worship. They would sing songs. And Jesus was a visiting rabbi, you know, big, big, good reputation from out of town kind of guy. And they said, Jesus, will you preach for us today? So Jesus gets up at the synagogue, he preaches, and he blows their mind. Um, to have Vin- Jesus show up at Venture one day and just preach, like, that would be so cool. And so just imagine that. So let's pick up at verse 22. This is an understatement. The people were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. What's ironic there is that the teachers of the law they had authority over the, like, they were, they had studied it. They'd gone to, like, you know, teachers of the law college and everything, you know. And so if you wanted to know about the Bible, you would ask those guys. When Jesus speaks, they're like, they were amazed. Verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. Now, if you think he had some crazy days at church, this is a legit demon-possessed guy. He starts yelling out at Jesus, like, I guess in the middle of the sermon. I don't know. And he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus says, be quiet. Come out of him. He's speaking to the demons. And the impure spirits shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. I'm not going to say I can completely relate to Jesus in this moment, uh, but I sort of can because I've had to preach lots of times, okay? A couple of you in here have had to preach a couple of times, and it's, 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 it can be a, a lot on your heart and your mind, okay? Just to preach to a group of people, there's a responsibility to it. I, I will, after a sermon, I will get off the stage, and I need a minute. I just got to breathe for a second, right, guys? Like, you need that. So this is Jesus preaching. He's not only preaching pretty good, he's preaching to a point where they're like, Dang, we ain't never seen anything like this before. So he laid it out there. I'm going to tell you, that was a good day at the synagogue for Jesus. He could have gone back and kicked up and watched Hebrew football and enjoyed the rest of the day and said, I worked good today. But it wasn't even over. It was just getting started. Right in the middle of all this greatness, demon-possessed guy gets up. And if you've ever worked with people who have impure spirits, whether literally or let's just say figuratively, broken people can take a lot out of you. This is about as broken as you can get, and Jesus deals with that. Pretty good day at the synagogue. We're talking about busyness, hurriness, crowds, muchness, manyness, and in terms of a busy day, Jesus has had one. But guess what? He's just getting started. Let's keep going. Verse 27, the people were also amazed. Oh, this is following up on the demon-possessed guy. The people were so amazed, they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority... And he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spread 
over the whole region of Galilee. That's important. Hold that thought. News is spreading. So then he's going to go home, verse 29. After a busy day already, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went to James's and John's home, sorry, with James and John, to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon and the apostle Peter, the same person. They, he had a couple names he went by. They call him Simon here. Simon and Andrew's house. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. She was sick. They immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her. He took her by the hand. He helped her up. And the fever left her. And she began to wait on them. So Jesus is at Simon's mother-in-law's house. This is Peter's mother-in-law. And he heals her from a sickness. This is a miracle. Okay, He's already had a busy day. He comes home. He heals a lady. And he does it so well that she's like feeling good enough to get up and make dinner. Like it says, she got up and began to wait on them. This is a, this is a lady who's like, man, I'm feeling good. Most people are like, Ma, stay in bed, okay? You, you're sick. But she gets up and she was busy day, and it's just getting started. Remember the word about Jesus has spread? Look at verse 32. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. I don't know if that's hyperbole or we're talking literally everybody in the town, but I'm thinking as Mark's writing this, he's like, yeah, it was a big crowd. It was, it was a big crowd for after sunset on the Sabbath when, by the way, you're supposed to stay home and do nothing in their culture. Verse 34, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases, and he also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So much about Jesus. I, I want to point out about the demons. The last phrase there is pretty cool. You remember what the impure spirit guy said at the synagogue? He said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's the euphemism for you. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. It's really cool. The, the spirits, the evil spirits, they recognized Jesus for who he was before even the disciples and the other people in Capernaum. They, they later would. Some of these people would become some of the first Christians. Of course, the disciples become leaders of the church. This just shows the power of Jesus, that the spiritual forces speak through this guy like, whoa, there's God in the flesh right there. Okay, that's just a side note. Jesus shows us a couple things in this story. And the first thing he shows us is this. And I want to make sure you hear this. It's okay to have a busy day. It's okay to have a busy day. Especially if it's a day where you're serving the Lord. When we're going to be doing the work of God's kingdom, especially when we're in the trenches with broken people, there's going to be busy days. Okay, So let's just get that out of the way. But we see Jesus doing good things and lots of things. And there's a lesson to be said in that. But... I cannot imagine but that he was exhausted at the end of that day. He'd had a lot. I want you to picture 17-year-old Chris at the stoplight running out of gas. And we hit moments in our life where we're just out. We're just done. And Jesus has this moment. And you got to ask yourself, what does he do with it? I want to see what Jesus does next. Okay, so let me take you on a little journey. We're going to eventually be in verse 35, if you want to flip over there, Mark 1, 35. But let's just paint a little picture. Imagine that it's a quiet morning. It's, it's 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun hasn't come up yet. And you're in this little village 2,000 years ago, ancient village. In that village is a road with a little house on it. And you're able to come in and kind of see through the window of the house. And laying on the ground are 13 men wrapped in quilts. And they're, they're sleeping. I mean, they're snoring, sawing logs. I mean, if you've ever been a group of men sleeping, I mean, that's what's going on right here, okay? And they're out cold, dead to the world. But one of them starts to stir. And he sits up in the darkness and he rubs his eyes and he stretches. Ah, and he looks around at the other guys in the room and smiles. And rolls his neck and then he pulls the quilt up around his shoulders. 
steps up and he begins to tiptoe through the room over top of the people. He gets to the door, he lifts the, hat, the latch and he walks out onto the road. It's still dark outside. You know that dark, dark purple, a few stars are still out. Sunset's not quite happened and he starts to walk towards the road. Maybe he can see his breath. And he gets to this path that he had noticed earlier and he kind of walks up it and he sees a spot up on a hill and he takes a seat and he wraps his quilt around him. And in this moment, he does what we did earlier. He takes a deep breath and he lets it out. Silence. Breathing. Silence. Breathing. And then something happens. In the silence, he feels presence. The presence of God. Jesus needed time to refuel. Mark chapter 1 verse 35 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went to a solitary place where he prayed. That's a very short verse. In classic Mark fashion, everything's small. But it's so big. There's another verse in the Bible, Psalm 46, 10. Forty-six, verse 10 that says be still and know that I am God so in this silence and this breathing and in the presence of God entering into his life someone once said that entering into silence is entering into joy now, you, you might not be able to relate with that because we live in a world where there's not much silence and here, Jesus is experiencing the joy of the presence of God. Deep breath, silence, the presence of God, joy. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 12, it calls this the gentle whisper of God. Our busyness pulls us away all the time. And it pulls us away from the presence of God, and it drains us. But in Jesus' busyness, he found the time, he made the time to get away very early in the morning. While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. And so let's break this down. I told you there were three ways we're going to break down abide with God. I said silence, meditation, and rest. And this is, like I said, we could do a whole sermon on all of them, but I want to kind of jump through these. And we've already seen the value of silence. As we went through this motion of telling Jesus' stories, he got up early in the morning and he did these other things. Like you could see the benefit of that, couldn't you? Can't you see the benefit of just being like, man, if I could just go be alone and just try to experience God? It's difficult to hear God in our life, to see Him in our life, and we don't take the time to listen for Him and look for Him. I've also heard another thing about silence. Listen to this. This is Silence is like a massage for your soul. Try it today. That's why, like, moms and dads, when you get home from a busy day at work and before you go into the craziness of the house, you ever sit and turn the car off and just sit there for a second? I think Aaron mentioned it in his sermon a few weeks ago. Like, it's a massage for your soul just to be still. And in that moment, yeah, you can pray, you can talk to God, but really, I think God can minister to you just when you just shut up. <laughs> just. And it's uncomfortable, isn't it? But it's important. What do we do in all that silence, okay? Silence, meditation. 
Let me recommend some meditation. What is meditation? Uh, you know, is it sitting with your arms crossed and your fingers home? I mean, yeah, that's a form of meditation. If you look in the Old Testament, uh, Richard uh, Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, has a chapter on meditation. And he says that in the Old Testament, there are a couple of words that are translated as meditate. And anytime those words are used, it is one of these kind of ideas. So, so here's some things we can meditate on. He says we can meditate by listening to the words of God. Like you could literally listen to scripture. Someone else could read it or you could read it and have it memorized. You could play it on, you know, an MP3 or something. You know, listening to the words of God, like scripture. You can also reflect on the works of God. Meditation is basically thinking, okay. Reflecting on the works of God is like, what has God already done? Like you can look at scripture or you can look in your own life or you can look in the lives of people that you've heard about. You can read books about faithful people and be like, that's what God did in there. You, you can reflect on God's works. You can also rehearse God's deeds. That's similar to reflecting on his works, but rehearsing his deeds is like making a list, at least in my mind. Uh, this is something I do with my kids a lot. When they're worried or, or stressed about something, I will show them, if I want to show them something, I'll show them, remember when this happened? Remember when this happened? Remember when this happened? We're rehearsing the deeds. And by doing that, you're, you're reestablishing God's track record in your heart. You can do that while you meditate. You can, uh, you can ruminate on God's law, he says. What is that? Well, God tells us, he, he tells us things to do, things not to do. That's a lot in scripture. He also gives us promises. And that is some things that can be considered his law. And so as you think about what God has told us in scripture, this is all meditate. So in silence, maybe you just need to not think for a minute. But maybe while you're there, maybe you can meditate. As you're learning to abide with God. Now, meditation doesn't have to happen sitting cross-legged, you know, on the beach. You can do it while you're jogging, on your exercising. You can do it while you're at work. If you're turning a wrench at work or you're typing on a computer and you're doing anything that can allow your brain to think about something else, meditate on God. And the thing about meditation is it draws us to something. Richard Foster says that meditation should lead to change. Like if, if my kids get in trouble, they're arguing with each other or whatever, and I tell them, go to your rooms and think about what you've done. First of all, parents, how effective is that? Eh, not very effective. But if I want them to go and think about what they've done, or in any form of discipline, think of, they're meditating, right? That's what that is. What do I expect out of them? Change. <laughs> I want them to do differently next time. So when we meditate on the goodness of God, His works, His law, and all those things, we start to realize that we have an opportunity to change, to shift our brains. And that's about getting in step with God. Remember, we're talking about rhythm. And the more we think about Him, the more we can abide in Him. I'll use one last quick analogy. Think about romance. You know, if you were ever in love in the seventh grade, ain't nothing else you can think about. I mean, you got the, you're all Twitter-pated. You just can't think. Your heart is fluttering, and you get, oh, he's so dreamy. And then you look back at pictures like, man, that was a scrawny string bean of a kid I was in love with. What, you know what I mean? But it's all you can think about because you're meditating on that person. And if we can do that with God, boom. So silence and meditation. The last one that I want to look at is rest. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about rest in a few weeks. I've got a series in the works, I think it's two series from now, called Made for Monday. Some of the best response I've heard from our, our church family is when we talk about work and how our faith is involved with our job, like that's powerful because that's what we spend like most of our time doing. And so we're going to talk a lot about Sabbath rest and things like that during that series. But let's just take a look quick at rest, okay? And I want to go to a passage from the Old Testament again. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 23 this time. And looking at what King David talked about. Now, King David, he was a king, all right? If you're a king, you're probably pretty busy, you think? 
One of his famous things he wrote while he was meditating once was a psalm uh, that we read in Psalm chapter 23. Listen to what he says. The Lord is my shepherd. You know this. You've heard it, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Silence, meditation, rest. How does this work with rest? I, I want to, I've never really noticed this until a friend of mine pointed out to me last week. What is King David? A king, okay? But when he writes this poem, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. So what does that make him? A sheep. Now, sheep are dependent on shepherds. Now, when you're a king, are you dependent on other people? I mean, yeah, you could argue, yeah, you're dependent on a lot of people. But you, in your mind, you're like, I'm in charge. Now, there is this shift that happens. What happens when David accepts God as his shepherd? He's allowed to experience rest. He's allowed to be fed. He's allowed, and if you, if you know the rest of the psalm, you know he's protected from his enemies. He's, all these other things are able to happen. Why? I think we get this relationship mixed up way too much. And we start to take the position of the shepherd when in reality, we are actually a sheep. Because if I'm the shepherd, I've got to take care of things. I've, everything depends on me. I've got to provide for my family. I've got to provide for me. I've got to keep my own, you know, uh, emotions at a certain place. But if you can come to the place where you say, I am not the shepherd. I'm a sheep. And the Lord is my shepherd. You know what that can bring you? Rest. Because to do that, you have to find trust and to do that, you have to find the ability to step back and, and let him lead. In Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the world, okay? And it's a busy couple days. And there's this like pattern, this poetry that comes out. And he's like, on the first day he did this and he did this. And then there was a morning and there was an evening on the first day. And it was good. And on the second day he did this and this. And there was a morning and there was an evening. And then it was good. And then the third day there was birds and there was trees and there was all kinds of stuff. And he worked and he worked and he worked and he worked. And it was good. And this pattern goes. This rhythm happens. And you're beating the drum. Boom, boom, boom. But then something happens. You get to the seventh day. Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. He says, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Even God in the busyness of creation took time to rest. Jesus in the busyness of his crazy big day. And if you look, he's going to keep going. I mean, he doesn't stop working the next day. He made time to refuel in that rest, silence, meditation, Rest. And if we're going to be in rhythm, in step, and in sway with what God is doing with our life, we can't keep running on empty. We need to learn to abide with Him. Stay for a while. Spend some time getting to know Him. That's what it is to abide in God. I, I, I kind of I summarized all this. I thought about this a lot because it's, it's a lot. We've been bouncing all over. And I summarized this in a simple kind of bulleted list of things. Listen to this. Because abiding with God is not, it's not just like inviting God to be a part of my rhythm. Like I got a rhythm in my life and let's just invite God in, okay, every Sunday for an hour. Or maybe I'll join a small group and just squeeze him in here and squeeze him in there. No, that's not what abide with God is. This is what abide with God is. First, turning off the beat that you've been producing. Turning it off. Silence. And then listening for his beat. Meditation. And trusting him to lead the dance.
That's rest. And that's how you can get in step with what God's doing. And find that rhythm to abide with him. Now, you don't have to live by it. You don't. You can pull up to the stoplight, and you can just bebop to your own little beat all day long, but it won't last. Eventually, you will run out of gas. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And if you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide with God. Let's pray, guys.